You're listening to the Deadly Uncle Podcast. A safe space for Deadly Uncle Conversations. All right, next up we have Chief Cadmus DeLorme. Yeah, Chief Cadmus is all the way from Kaos's First Nation, and both Kurt and myself have familial ties to Kaos's First Nation, so it's our pleasure to have him today. Cadmus has a master's degree in public administration. He's got a bachelor of administration as well as a certificate in hospitality and tourism. He's got some great economic things going on in the First Nation, and we're so proud to have him here today. Blessed to have him. I grew up on Cows' First Nation. I, um, I'm 40 years old. I, I look young. That's that reserve water. I shower it every day on Cows's. And um, I... I grew up just beside the band office on, on the upper hill. So on Cowses, there's a lower and an upper hill. We're in the Coppell Valley. Our ancestors picked a beautiful location. And I graduated from Cowses Community Education Center in 2000. I, I had one goal at the time, and it was a look like Eminem Marshall Matters. And uh, anybody that stalks me on social media, you'll find a picture of me trying to really look like Eminem Marshall Matters. I, I grew up in a home with uh, loving parents. Uh, we weren't wealthy rich. We were just love rich. I'm the youngest of nine children. Um, I'm the only child from my mom and dad. Uh, so at my house growing up, the joke was, honey, your kid and my kid are beating up our kid. And then the, I was our <laughs> kid. So uh, I, uh, I I had a very diverse, loving family. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, today I actually I'm talking to you from the house I grew up in. Uh, my wow. wife and I raise our kids, our kids now. Uh where my mom and dad raised me. So, so it's really nice to, to share a little bit of my past. Isn't that amazing? You know, I just found out this year, I, I went and did a documentary on, on my reserve, uh, George Gordon's first nation uh, from my mom's side. And she was telling us that she was actually born right in my Cookham's house, right in the bathtub there. So really, really, uh, wild to know that uh, the histories that, that you know the history these homes have you know today you know on our reserves 100%. so what are the things I... uh oh sorry <laughs> <laughs> no go for it i was wondering like you, you grew up on reserve what were some of the things you could do when you were younger that kept you like what kind of athletics were you involved in what was the school mm -hmm. like we both grew up in the city so we don't really know what it was like you know growing up on the reserve for sure. I, I lived in the city from uh, the age of 19 to uh, 33 when I was elected chief and I moved back home. And um, I, I really see the the how growing up on the reserve had its unique perspectives. You knew your neighbors very well and your neighbors were a kilometer apart Um going to your neighbors wasn't just like walking down the street and uh, going to a 7-Eleven for a Slurpee or something. No, no, you had to bike or walk and it was quite the journey sometimes, but it was just like nothing. It was just like, I'm going to go uh, see uh, Emery down the road. And, you know, it sounds like down the road, but it's like two kilometers away. And so you, you really appreciated your bike and, and, or your walk. And uh, your your visits, your visits were longer because you had to walk or drive all the way home after you were done. Your um, just it really takes a community to raise a child. You you knew everybody. You knew where everybody lived. If 
you know, I, I remember running out of gas in my second vehicle. I was 16 years old and um, we were going to the gas station and I was like, yeah, I'll go check on Dennis out telling my friend I was with, I'll just go check on Dennis. And I knew he had a Rottweiler because when you're on the reserve, you know, whose dogs are what. And Dennis's Rottweiler chased me all the way back to my car. And Dennis come out just laughing. He's an elder. Eh? And still to this day, he makes the best joke about how fast I ran back to my car. And, you know, this, the sports was, um, the, it wasn't just cows where we're adjacent. There's Zagame, Cowses, Kakawishtown, or Chapways. And so mm. we, we, we amalgamated our sports. And I remember playing on peewee Bantam hockey teams with the four nations. And today we, we use that, that friendship from our hockey to unite now in more politics and, and bigger adult uh, focused areas. And then lastly, the local towns, you know, it was very Indian versus towns. Like, I'm not going to shy away from that. Like it was, but it wasn't always <laughs> yeah. bad things. Like I mean, like, yeah. like when we would go, we'd always play soccer. Of course, you didn't have to pick teams because you were either on the Indian team or the white team. And uh, so, you know, we, we would play our, our sports like that. But, you know, it was after the games, like we would go hang out and, you know, it was fun. And, you know, we would go to when you got into the party stages or the the, the weekend stuff when you were teenagers, you know, we would go to a, a house party at a farm by the nation. And then sometimes they would venture out to the reserve. I think we had our little stigma once in a while. But, you know, just growing up on the reserve was um, I found myself very appreciative of a uh, of a Slurpee when I got to the city or a Zeller <laughs> or, or, a, or a Walmart because on the reserve, you just got what you have in the fridge and, and that was the best part. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I can imagine that. So what is there much for ceremonies and for tradition on cows were you involved is your family involved in in any of that and, and what's your experience with with uh, tradition you know when it comes to ceremonies uh we we first got to understand what we inherited uh you know our ancestors um you know foundational was prayer prayer was everything to our ancestors you know because of colonization um it, it is kind of a hit and miss today and some have the some bad experiences some just don't know where to start some some know it's in our history but they just they don't know if it's them um you know it's kind of political at times too you know if you really get into to it a little bit but um you know, growing up, my parents uh, both attended residential schools and were not really um, into the ceremonies, respected it, but were not really into it. When I was 12 years old, my mom and dad dropped me off at a rain dance in Zagami on a Wednesday and picked me up on Sunday. I had no clue what a rain dance was. I just... I learned so much in those days I was there. We got the center tree. I was in charge of keeping the sweetgrass going, going around the main, the, 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 the center tree when it was there. I, I was, um, I was the helper all weekend. And one of the best experiences I ever had, I don't think we should do that to our kids today. I'm not promoting that. <laughs> but my parents did. And, um, you know, I always had a respect for ceremonies. I knew what my parents were doing. They were just dropping me off with people who knew. And so, you know, when I was 18, my, my mom got sick. She, she had something wrong with her spine. And uh, at that time, my dad and mom had a, a relative that was very ceremonial and said, someone has to sacrifice in your family. And uh, what that means is uh, to, to fast. 
And so at 18, I fasted for my mom and my best friend at the time, Rai Lara. We were like best friends growing up on the reserve. He fasted with me. And so it really allowed me to understand ceremony. So today, to really answer your question, ceremony is in communities. It is in First Nations. But it's not like a personal invite. Don't wait for your personal invite. You know, mm. my parents knew that their upbringing was different, but they really encouraged me to welcome it in for, for myself. So today, my kids and my wife and I, we uh, we we attend ceremonies. Like on Cowses, there are three sweat lodges, and they're all family-run. They're not community sweat lodges, but these mm. family runs, they're, they're for the community. Like if you mm -hmm. were ever to come to Cowses and say you want to go to a sweat, I'll just tell you, um, there's one tonight, there's one in two days, there's one on Saturday, which which one would you like to go to? And, you know, we're very encouraging and helping in the protocol too, because we know sometimes people may not know the protocol. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that's exactly my parents' experience and our experience as well, yeah. kind of growing up, like I, I, I just realized, like I... Because of growing up in, in Treaty 7 area, I was exposed to the Blackfoot uh, teachings and, and way of being up in this area. So, um, you know, I didn't really grow up too, too much in Edmonton. Um, I was back and forth as a kid, but I got a little bit uh, of those teachings from the, from the Treaty 7. So, you know, learning it, uh, mm -hmm. in, and I'm still learning. I'm still learning. I, I just found out that one of our... Um, our ceremonies is is our from my uncle George, who uh, also is a power singer of uh, Grey Buffalo. So, yeah, just learning, uh, learning in our older older ages. You know, uh, growing up in the city, um, you know, we're trying to experience that for ourselves for sure. Mm, nice, it's a lifelong yeah. journey. <laughs> for sure and you mentioned the other reserves. Um, are are you related um, to anybody? on say the other three reserves. I'm not, I'm not familiar with your background that much, Cadmus. Absolutely. So my father uh, is Bruce Delorme. Uh, yeah. His, uh, his father was Leo Delorme and my, my great grandfather was Ambrose Delorme. So that's my lineage in Cowsis. And then the Lara family with that, my, my grandma, my dad's mom was a Lara. My mother's from Ochapoes. My, my mother is a bear Isaac from Ochapoes. Uh, her grandmother is a Lewisin from Kakawishtahau, and I have a few exes on Sakame, so I'm related to all four uh, in, in the four nations here. So, <laughs> well, I, I was I was really interested when I when we came to the urban dinner. You guys had all the uh, ancestry stuff put up on on uh, yes. the wall there, and that kind of um, started a journey for me. To going into this stuff because um, Dino Lara got in touch with me. He was doing some of the ancestry stuff and he sent me like an ancestry chart of my own. And I don't know if you're aware of um, my great grandmother, Madeline Osoup or Madeline Akus, her mm -hmm. story. Mm -hmm. So she was adopted onto the reserve in like around the turn of the century. And she was um, not indigenous, but she was adopted as a baby and raised, you know, traditionally on Calisus with the Osoups and then married my great-grandfather, Mush and Paul. So through all this DNA stuff, they were able to locate her birth parents through ancestry. And I've been able to trace that Irish lineage wow. right back to the 1700s. And the, 
wild thing about it is one of my ancestors was born in Monaghan, Ireland, and I'm going to Monaghan in five days to perform. So it's nice. like this, the, it all started at that Kaosis dinner. It kind of wow. sparked my, my thing into this. Cause we always, um, there was always oral history in our family about Coca Madeline and how, where she came from and, and all this ancestry stuff is actually, it's like verified all that oral history that we had. So it's, it's really cool. And it was, it was kind of sparked by what I what I experienced at the Kaosis thing there, where I was looking at all these family names, and I'm like, I'd like to figure out my dad's grandmother's line mm-hmm. because that was unknown to us before. But now I've been able to fill in all those blanks. So thanks for that. That was actually interesting. <laughs> I'm glad that the nation is doing that for people to see how they're they're related to each other, and because it's it's really important to know where you came from. I think to understand what's coming next, right? A hundred percent. And thanks for sharing that. And you did that between your guys' amazing songs you were sharing with us. So, so that's, that's, that's really good. You know, be, being a Indigenous male, like, you know, we're three males here. You know, it, it doesn't matter if you're on reserve, off reserve, if you've never been to the reserve, if you've always lived on a reserve. Each of us share that, you know, we, we don't really know our history. Like, like that's just that's just standard. And you know, it's a, it's a reality check. It's it's not a, I don't think it's something to dwell on. But, you know, once you start getting into your history or, you know, maybe our fathers did something, maybe our fathers weren't there. Maybe our fathers were very loving. Like we all have different backgrounds. But the more we get to learn our lineage and like our actual bloodline, it really allows us to understand more of what we inherited and not take it so personal sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um because you know it's already tough being a male in this country especially an indigenous male and um but you know i'm really happy you got to experience that trent because um i, I was you know one that uh, i i had a a father who who was very close to me but he wasn't really close with his father and never really talked about his grandpa so my own male lineage i i can only go back really as far as my father and then my uncles played a little role as well but I come from a family where men don't share their feelings. It's all humor and, um, you know, just, just, you know, a little bit of tough love here and there. Um, yeah. So, you know, even for my boy today, my boys, I am, uh, it's tough for me personally to try and show emotions, but I, I recognize that today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. And, and I think it's important for indigenous men to be able to share uh, their feelings and 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 sh- and hug their children. I was telling Trent, and I've told a few other people myself too. I never knew how to hug uh, anybody until I was about twenty eight years old. Like and hug in a in a family way, like a real true uh, loving hug, you know. And and it's it's just the the small things that I think that we forget about, you know, as a society. So I just wanted to ask you. Um, how did you get into the position of of being chief, and um, why is that important to you? And and what's what's been the uh, biggest change in your life since you've um, you know been in this uh, lead, leadership position? Mm-hmm. I I grew up on Cows's First Nation, and I grew up where my father was an elected official, not a chief, but an elected counselor. And um, w- when you didn't have the cell phones and you only had the uh, the landlines, I, I would hear my dad getting phone calls in the evenings and weekends and 
you know, I, I would attend meetings with him. I, I was just a smaller guy and, you know, I used to sit there and watch and I, I would, uh, you know, play my part. And I used to go visit with him at homes when he'd go around visiting at homes. And, you know, so my dad taught me a lot about what, um, you know, a counselor slash potential chief would, would be. I, I got an undergrad, undergrad, undergrad degree in business administration from First Nations University of Canada. And then I went and got my master's in public policy, public administration from the Johnson Shiama School of Public Policy. And I knew I wanted to be a chief at that time. And uh, somebody said, why don't you run for counselor first? And I was like, no, I'm, I feel like I'm a chief. I was like, the tone starts at the top. And, uh, you know, I, I, I ran and I got elected. I got elected in 2016 uh, with a very high popular vote. I um, experienced a lot during that first term. And I re-ran for a second term, uh, and I didn't get as much as the popular vote as the first term because when you're a chief, uh, you got to make decisions for the children and children yet unborn. And uh, sometimes some people want you to make decisions for short-term benefit and not long-term gain. And mm -hmm. I'm an elected official where I'm always thinking long-term. Like this, this is what you call delayed gratification, and sometimes politicians don't like that because – you're not going to feel the benefits of your change for sometimes a generation, sometimes a couple years. And so, um, you know, my biggest learning is you see the people differently from a chief's chair. You know, growing up, you know, the families, the Adjukutes, the Laras, the Digerlies, the Redwoods, the Tanners, the Sparviers. And, you know, I grew up here. I grew up with the kids my age. I, I know them from school. But when you're a chief, you know, you manage poverty. You manage physical, emotional, mental poverty. And, you know, you have a budget. And it's not money doesn't grow on trees. Like, you got to always make some tough decisions because when you manage poverty, that means you kind of don't have resources. You work with the council. They're the decision makers. I'm not the decision maker as a chief. People think that, you know, you're the president. You, you're, you're the man. You get to make the decisions. No, you, you have to convince eight councillors to vote in favor constantly and uh it's a good democratic system and so uh i and then lastly you become numb to the to the to the poverty after a while like as a chief you attend the funerals the wakes you you get there when there's not so much good times going on and um it's just your duty you're you're there to drive hope hope for your people and uh i um i'm enjoying the journey that's amazing. That's amazing. You know, I I, uh, I also know that you guys have a Tim Hortons um, that you uh, that you're a part of. That's amazing. You know, one of the things that I've always mm -hmm. talked about, which would be cool, little little idea I'll throw out there for for somebody maybe in the future here. Uh, it would be really cool at at a powwow. You know those uh, those big buses that they have when they're working on Tim Hortons and the bus parks there, and people can come up and still do their drive through. Wouldn't that be cool to have a bus like that that drives to powwows and and parks there, and, and it's like a real Tim Hortons thing. Just little. <laughs> <laughs> what, what if what if you had dancer drive through? You're just in the arbor, just having a <laughs> coffee and tea there, and you know they, they won't even have to leave the yard. You, you know, instead of drive through cars, you just have drive through uh, intertribals. You know, maybe that's uh, something that could be. Uh, 
Everybody I mean, loves their titties. You know? Dancing for, <laughs> and then he can have the real tiny tots. <laughs> espresso, oh, you'll know when the fancy dancers come out, they'll be espresso uh, being handed out. <laughs> we'll change it to the Timbit dance. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And I also just uh, wanted to say that I seen um. I think it's Kauzis that's throwing on the men's group um, yeah, in, in, in Regina. I'm not sure if you, you've heard of that, but yes. if you do, I would love to know more about that and, and why that's important and how that all started. Yeah, thank you. You know, Kauzis is uh, revamping child welfare reform. Um, and it's not just about the child. It's about the vertical lineage of the child, uh, mom and dad, grandma, grandpa, uncle, auntie. And, um, you know, we have women's groups, which are needed. You know, the most toughest person to be in this country is a female indigenous person that there's no question there. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, parents sometimes just need to be retaught how to be a parent. And I don't mean that in a bad way. That's just, you know, we, we've been through a lot as indigenous people. And so, you know, we were like, well, what are we doing for the men? What, 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 what are we doing to just bring men together? And so on the reserve, we've had a men's group for a while. You know, now we're starting to move into the urban settings. Uh, Regina is a huge population for Kauzis First Nation. We have more people that live in Regina than in the community of Kauzis. So uh, we are expanding. Uh, we do virtual. So, you know, we try and do them online as well. And it's really tough, uh, especially virtually when you're trying to vent or share a little bit and you don't know who's on listening or when you're in a room with other men, right away you put up that shield, you know, because there's three shields each of us carry, that outside shield that everybody sees and that's that smile you always have on your face, that second sphere is just your closest friends and family see and that third sphere nobody ever sees and that's the one sometimes that where that depression or that sadness or that loneliness really kicks in and you know, so, you know, when we have our men's groups and our men's circles, it's, we try at least get to that second spear so you could like share a little bit and make sure that, you know, understand you're not alone on this journey. That's amazing. And I, I totally agree with you. That's one of the hardest things that we were talking about is how do you get a bunch of men in the same room um, to talk? You know, that's, that <laughs> was one of the difficult things. And we thought, you know what, let's start a podcast and let's shine the light on right. indigenous men. Let's have people that can, uh, you know, tune in through video, through audio, have it all open for people to, you know, be a part of, because you're right. Um, there has been a, a lack of programming for Indigenous men and being a performing artist and going to, um, you know, all these uh, post-secondary graduations where I'm, I'm invited to perform. I've seen the, uh, I've seen um, what it is, you know, with, with Indigenous women, you know, there'll be 45 of them, um, you know, graduating with post-secondary compared to about 15, 20 men. So there is a huge landslide in that. And so I think it's important for us as Indigenous men to create those spaces uh, for each other, you know, and, and shine the light on each other. Because there's a lot of amazing, amazing Indigenous. We have 20 men that are on this first season that are just doing amazing things and they're not all famous they don't all have big huge positions either some of them are just regular uh you know youth workers or 
good dads, those type of things. So yeah. it's just, uh, it's shining the light on those people. And then also, you know, the programs that uh, we see that are happening, we want to uh, be able to, you know, share that with, with the communities. And that's why we're doing this podcast. So, yeah, it's just amazing to hear, you know, your journey as well. You were a lot. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> well, I was just going to say there's a lot of deadly uncles out there. Hey. Oh, there is. Like we've met a, a few of them. I was just going to talk a little bit about, you were talking about revamping the, the child welfare system for Kaosis. Like Kaosis has the largest population in treaty four. Am I correct? Okay. Correct. So you have, and then the majority of those people live off reserves. So I can see how you say you're managing poverty, right? Like that's got to be tough with having, you know, all your people spread out um, in the child welfare system. Like you say, you're, you're working with vertically with, with families. Is there any kind of programs where like we have like off reserve housing? Um, I'm just, I'm running. I used to run a program here in Edmonton. Sorry. My brain is like rolling. I'm trying to, <laughs> Get where I get to my question here. I worked for a program called Morning Fire Protector. So in Edmonton, what it was, was it was people experiencing homelessness. It was people and families that they all put in a, um, a building together. And they had workers there, like older auntie style workers that were there to work with the people and just help them with that transition. A lot of the people were people that came off reserve and that were struggling to get used to living in the city. Is that a program that Calisys has or would like consider? Cause that's what I think like from my experience working frontline in the city with indigenous people, that was a really successful program for people that were having that culture shock when they first moved to the city and to have those cultural supports, you know, auntie kind of grandmother supports there for those, those families was really was really an important thing for them to transition living into the cities. And I was just wondering if we had anything like that for Kaosis. Mm -hmm. Good, good question. Uh, first off, the population. Kaosis is the biggest population in Treaty 4, and Gordon's is actually right behind us. We're, we're 4,320 people from Kaosis, and people ask why we're so big, and I always say it's because we're sexy and we know it. That's that's why we're such a big first nation. <laughs> but... <laughs> but but you know to to your very important question Trent about um um supporting the family um I, I'm going to get a little technical here in child welfare reform just, just for a little bit so there's yeah. two approaches to child welfare there's prevention and there's protection protection is where the parents and the child need direct intervention like like actual I hate to say the word, but we all know it is called um, apprehension and stuff like that. We, we try to resist that at all costs. And uh, for the best interest of the child, sometimes that has to happen. But prevention means many things. It's how do you gain the family to have parity with everybody else in that city or that community? Like, how do you make sure everybody's similar outcomes? And so we are starting more locally uh, we have what you call Sacred Wolf Lodge, where if a family is in prevention, we ask them, and, and, and it's not getting better if the family just has a lot of intergenerational trauma, we will ask them if they would like to stay for three months in Sacred Wolf Lodge. So mom, dad, kids, and we um, train grandmothers to go and live with them. So they become their kokums, their, their grandmothers, and they go there in shifts 
and they just um you know reteach them how supper is how how you clean up after supper how you you know have a talking circle before bed how you help each other in the morning and we've been graduating families from sacred wolf lodge um very successfully lately uh it's a new model and so we are now looking to expand it but you know to just throw it out there um it's tough to do it in cities especially farther away from houses because uh um, you know, a lot of our, our ideas and thoughts start at home and then branch out from there. If you have ideas or suggestions, if your nation is doing child welfare reform, today it's called Bill C-92, but it's it's really you just get to assert your own jurisdiction as we always should have had. This is where those ideas need to come in. Like we need to make sure this is happening in as much places as possible the, the challenge is, is the money may be there, but it's the resources to get it action-oriented and mm -hmm. real is going to be the challenge. Yeah, no, that's that's the the ideas are always there, I guess. But, you know, um, uh, creating a staff, a building, making that whole thing is definitely a, a challenge within itself. And it kind of brings me to my next uh, question, um, you know, People are starting to talk about, you know, having a uh, a place in every major city for Indigenous people to have wakes, to have uh, ceremonies, to be able to pray almost like a church or like a mosque that other non-Indigenous people have to pray. Um, and, and having these spaces uh, inside of our city for, uh, you know, people that may have passed away. Uh, you know, they have a lot of friends or family that are in that city that can't make it out uh, into the land to go to funerals. So mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, people have been talking about creating these spaces for Indigenous peoples inside of every major city across Turtle Island. And I just wanted to know your opinion on that and, and whether you think it's important or, or not. Absolutely. The um, I'll start. I'm going to separate your question into two. I'll talk about the gathering places in in urban settings for 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 times of mourning. Maybe it could be a wake or a funeral. Um, it, it, it's a tough go. Like like in the community, you get the hall for free. You uh, you know at no cost, and you know the chief and council and the community all come together. Food is brought, and it's just a beautiful beautiful moment in a very sad time as well. But it just shows how. You know the community will will put aside any any uh, other thing that's going on just to try and uh, accommodate the best they can. In the cities, it's so diverse and so big; it's it's tough to do that. And you know, some centers have it, some centers don't. And I, I do hope in the future that cities, maybe municipalities, can partner with local First Nations and Métis to to make a facility like that. But it actually has to be co-driven by the municipalities as well. When it comes to ceremonies, um, indigenous ceremonies are are very are it's a coming of age, and and it's there's a lot of um, you you gotta sacrifice years and years and years to become a, a a very respected and 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 carry yourself in that way to be a ceremonial leader. Um, it's, it's a doctor takes eight years for a doctor to be a country to be in this country, a doctor, uh, it probably takes you 20 years to, to be a ceremonial leader. Cause you've got to sacrifice so much. And so it's very personal and, you know, just, you know, to say a, a mosque or, or a church, um, you know, first nation ceremonies, um, they're very, uh, 
um, not territorial, but kind of respecting one another without crossing those lines. Uh, like I'll give an example in cows is uh, like we have one ceremony teepee that uh, that does Cree. We have one that does Dakota, uh, uh, Lakota. We, we have one that does kind of a Cree Soto. Um, you kind of got to know the protocols for each of them because they're all unique. And it's not a bad thing, but it's just you got to know the protocols because it's just a respectable thing. So you can't really have just one in a city because, you know, you're, you're going to have um, people not show up because, well, I don't do Lakota. I don't do Cree. I, I, I don't do that way. And, you know, and we don't want to hinder people. We want them to be welcoming. And, and so I think you almost need to know your territory of your city, like Edmonton, for example, you know, very strong Korea yeah. in the south, you know, very yeah. Dene in the north. How do you make sure you have those as options? You probably have a lot of Ojibwe from the from the east side of Canada. Do you need an Ojibwe one? So I think you kind of got to separate the two, but make sure mm -hmm. if you use the local hub as the place to go to those other places, 100%. Yeah, and the, you know it's 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 great that you say that because we were speaking to somebody here from this area, and they were talking and saying the same thing that they will have the ceremonies, but they'll have them in different teepees, and they'll mm -hmm. they'll be for different tribes uh, or, or or different or different dates, those type of things uh, to have have the actual building. So that's totally another. And see, that's 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 one of the things that that I think is being discussed is how do we accommodate all the different uh, ways of being, you know, how do we accommodate all that? So, but I, I, I do think that it is uh, important for us to have those spaces as, as indigenous people for, especially for uh, the, the urban people that can't make it out, uh, you know, to, to do ceremonies out on the land. So, but yeah, yeah. a lot of our brothers and sisters on the streets, they, they can't make it back home, right? Like they're living type of life. And just to be able to, you know, maybe get to smudge in an area would be something that would lead them on the right path. And those are the types of things that we're talking about. Not, I mean, of course, ceremonies as well, but trying yeah. to introduce our, our people that are struggling back to their culture a little bit, giving them kind of a guiding way, if we could. Yeah. A hundred percent. You know, like one more comment is, you know, if municipalities, and I'm talking cities too, when I say municipality, I mean a mayor and council. You know, you take Edmonton, Calgary, Regina, Saskatoon. Um, we'll just, just use those five. If if each council can dedicate two to four acres of land in a very strategic place where transportation can get there, buses and and, and whatnot. And I tell you, just make it big enough for 100 people to gather a couple of breakout rooms, the healing that would happen in each city and the unity that the nations would come to. Like, cows is we have 200 people that live in Edmonton in the surrounding area. If, if I knew the mayor and council were doing that, I would personally call the mayor and say, cows is First Nation supports you. Do you need a letter of support for the federal government to fund this? Because you're helping cows is members like it really has to kind of be driven by the municipalities to really drive it. And I know the local nations and, 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 and supporting nations would support it as well. And if it's this podcast that is going to awaken that, maybe we just need to, uh, you know, because it will help. You can have language classes there. You can have smudging at any time. You can have yeah. food on cold yeah. days. 
Um, you know, you can, you can prepare maybe a men's hunting group to go out to the North and that's where they go before. And that's where they bring their, their, whatever they, you know, whatever animal, you know, they prayed for and they bring back, maybe that's where you can skin it and and teach again, but we need a safe place to do that. 100%. That's amazing. You know, and it's uh, the ideas will just be sparked, you know, as, as it goes through, you know, and it's just, uh, I think it's been a long time coming. And as we say, we're, we're creating these conversations um, to hopefully start ideas. And, uh, you know, even with the, the men, we have a men's group here that's thrown on by Ben Tarot that we had no idea about. Yeah. And so when that podcast comes out, a lot of men are going, going to find out about this, this group that you can, you can join online as well too. You don't have to leave your home uh, if you want to, you know, get those, that help through, you know, speaking and having those conversations. So that's exactly what this podcast is, is about. And, you know, to, I, I think that, you know, having you on here, you're definitely uh, uh, one of the deadly uncles and we'll be sending you a, uh, a deadly uncle cap it's called the deadly uncle podcast so next time we we see pictures of you uh golfing we want to see this happen (laughs) i i would be honored to and if an auntie asked me where to find a deadly uncle and i wear it i'm going to direct them back to your website send all the aunties our way well me anyways this this man's the man Uh, well, we're we're glad you had the time to to finally sit down with us, Chief. We yeah. really we're really glad that you, you know, had the time to do this because I think you are a role model for a lot of younger Indigenous men from Cowess yeah. and from all over, you know, Saskatchewan. And yeah. so, thank you for your time. Yeah, and it's it's like like Trent said, it's it's great to see you know someone that's in the younger years, you know. Um, giving a breath of fresh air to community, to leadership and those things with also following that protocol, which is always important too, but it's really nice to see, you know, somebody that's, uh, you know, in their younger years. And speaking of aunties, you know, I knew you were okay. Cause my auntie bell said she knew you and you're good guys. Auntie bell young. She was at the, she was a librarian at the First yeah. Nations University. Yeah. She said she knew you were. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, sorry, Trent. I was going to say when Auntie Bell's name comes up on my phone, I'm either going to get a praise or I'm going to get heck for something. Like, there's no middle ground. That sounds about right. I, I get the same call. <laughs> it's probably not as serious as a chief's call, but <laughs> she's always ready to tell me to smarten up. That's for sure. That's the best. <laughs> well, thank you for all you do. And thank you so much for being on the mm-hmm. podcast today. You really uh, have made the season one special and uh, we hope to see you in the future here. Mm, and thank you both and everybody listening. Hey, one day at a time, we're getting stronger. Hi hi. Hi hi. Thanks hi, again. Hi. And we'll email you when we're when we're going to upload the podcast and stuff. I'll give okay. you all the details. We're going to get it all together in the next couple of weeks, so we'll let you know. A lot. Sounds good. A lot of fun, very professional. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Deadly Uncle podcast, a safe space for deadly uncle conversations.